0: A podcast from Premier Unbelievable.
1: Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, as always, I'm Tim White, and I'm joined by my dad, John White. Hi, John.
0: Hi, it's good to be here.
1: Well today it's quite an opposite uh, topic for us too because we're going to be talking about uh, old people and young people. We're going to be talking about demographic changes across the world, the implications of our increasingly aging society, and then we're going to go on to think about some Christian perspectives on on what this might mean, in particular what are old people for. So hopefully John will be coming up with a positive answer for that last question.
0: <laughs> yes, well it is slightly interesting isn't it that this that our discussion represents are two perspectives. So I'm the representative old person, and you're the representative <laughs> young person. And you've got to be nice to me.
1: <laughs> Is that right? Is that how it works? Very much a, ma- a question of life and death as the, as the title implies with this podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, That's right. So, so you represent life and I represent death.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right to me. Um, uh, well, let's kick off the conversation then by talking about kind of the demographic changes we've seen around the world. A lot of people will be aware um but let's that that the overall trend over the last decades has been towards an increasingly aging society not just in the uk where we are but but in many western countries and increasingly interestingly in in some developing nations as well
0: Yeah, so i've been reading a book called tomorrow's people by paul moorland which is all about demography and it sounds you know pretty dull and as ditch water but but actually i found it really fascinating and um he, he just repeatedly points out the extraordinary changes that are taking place in population across the world. And he then argues that actually these fundamental forces are much more relevant in terms of influencing our society that, than we realise. Hmm. So
1: I guess we should sketch very briefly some important kind of world history demography people need to understand is this concept of the demographic transition. Um, so kind of... In, in broad terms, correct me where I'm wrong here, I'm not a geographer, but that's the idea that, you know, historically, for most of human history, populations have, there's been um, uh, a relatively high birth rate, people have lots of children, uh, and a high death rate, and lots of people die quite young, and that led to quite small populations and relatively s- steady and slow population growth. And then you have a, a transition uh, phase one to phase two, if you like, where we have the industrial revolution and a kind of revolution in in healthcare and um, a huge growth in wealth and prosperity. And what that means is that the death rate starts to fall, starting in Western developed nations, um, as we get better at um, lowering rates of infant mortality and better at treating diseases and things like that. And so then you transition to a phase where you. You still have the same high birth rates but you have much much lower death rates and what that causes is populations explode in size.
0: Yes so so the Reverend Thomas Malthus in the late 18th century he uh, had this great concern about population catastrophe. What was going to happen is that the population would explode, we would run out of food, there would be mass starvation and uh, conflict and, and death and so these Malthusian predictions um, have really haunted uh, much of uh, people's planning as they look to the future uh, concern that and I certainly remember you know as as a student in the 1970s there was a great deal of talk about population catastrophe world overpopulation mass starvation and in fact people Some people were talking about the irresponsibility of bringing new mouths into the world because there were already far too many mouths for the world to sustain. Mm. And what's fascinating is that the Malthusian kind of
1: predictions of catastrophe, you know, he was predicting that when the world population reached even 500 million or 1 billion, it would there would be a kind of spiraling famine and, and, and apocalypse. And that clearly is not the case that the world population is nudging up to 8 billion. And we have found ways to feed everyone though it, though it hasn't removed the kind of as you say the kind of existential anxiety that successive generations have about population growth but let's talk about the second phase of this demographic transition so you we we initially we had very high fertility rates and very high mortality rates and then we transitioned thanks to economic development industrial revolution advances in healthcare to continuing high fertility rates and low mortality rates, which causes this population explosion. And you can see, you know, when you track it, it started off in, in, in kind of Western Europe and North America. You know, populations were doubling in some cases in some nations every few decades. It was astonishing. And that kind of prompted a lot of the kind of vigorous growth of the Victorian era, settlers, colonialism. But then you transition, what is what is interesting and what has happened time and time again is that as countries become wealthier, more prosperous, more settled, fertility rates start to plummet and you end up where you are now in the developed world, which is where we continue to have very low mortality rates and thankfully continuing to push down infant mortality and that kind of thing. But we also now have very low fertility rates and where people historically might have had five, six, seven children, they're now in some, in the kind of extreme examples in certain countries, which we'll talk about later, people the average is is dropping is hovering around one child uh, per per person which is far below the what's known as the replacement rate so if you want to c- continue to hold your population at its current size every fertile woman
0: needs to have uh, about 2.2 2 children that's right and um, what's happening in in most places across the world is the fertility rate the 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 number of babies that every woman has is, is dropping. And um, in, in China now, it's thought to be around 1.2. And I think the lowest start is in uh, South Korea with 0.8. And uh, if you have that trend persisting over years, of course, you end up with a, a massive population implosion. The, the, the population declines really quite dramatically. Um, and also you get an, inc- an excess of, of elderly people. So so really quite strange. And 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 th- these kind of population changes have really never been seen before on the planet Earth.
1: No, no, not at all. And, and so what is fascinating is that, you know, as you say, as recent as the kind of 1960s when you were training, 1970s as a doctor, there was real concern that, in, that while the developed world, you know, people weren't worried about Britain having a population crisis. Um, because our fertility rates had, had already plummeted down into the twos at that point, and have continued to fall. But they were concerned about countries such as, you know, Bangladesh, India, um, and, uh, you know, lots of sub-Saharan Africa. There was a real concern that their death rates were thankfully plummeting as some of the advances of, of, of Western medicine technologies were filtering down to the developing world. But the fertility rates at that point were very high, and that was causing... Uh, real concerns of of kind of crisis, and there was lots of effort put into, you know, family planning and, and that kind of thing to try and um, encourage birth rates to fall. And, and in the most extreme example, we saw in China that the dictatorship there imposed the famous, infamous one child policy, which, you know, legally barred people from having one more than one child in an effort to slow down at that point this explosive growth in 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 population and now 50 years on what's fascinating is that it's gone we've almost overcorrected and now you know people in countries such as Bangladesh uh have no more children than we do have in the west um, but they've they that that kind of collapse in in birth fertility rates has happened much faster than it did the kind of gradual slide we saw in the West and that's now causing as you said its own significant problems in the other direction not not starvation because there's too many young people but economic stagnation because there's too many old people.
0: Yes, and it is. I mean, when, we probably won't spend much more time sort of on this particular issue, but the question of why this. Massive collapse in fertility <clears throat> is happening across the world. I find really interesting because it's it's happening in societies <clears throat> of of many different religious backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, historical emphasis. It it's an, almost a universal trend. Um, but interestingly, there are some outliers, and uh, and what the book um, I've been reading emphasizes in particular is is, is two outliers. And one is parts of Africa where the population explosion is still very much going on. You, you've got maintaining high fertility rates as the mortality rates are, are going down. And the second, which would be interesting to come back to, is certain small specific religious groups who are very pronatal and who are mm. having large numbers of children.
1: Mm. So that those examples of those would be groups like... Um the hasidic or kind of strictly orthodox jewish community um uh present in in lots of places in the west uh new york london where it's not uncommon for families there to still have five six seven eight children and as a result uh that population is as you'd expect growing very very rapidly to the point where they've actually started to have to um Uh, move out of their existing kind of historic settled communities so so not far from from where we grew up where I grew up and where you still live in London John there is as you know a a large uh, Hasidic Jewish community and um, in Stamford Hill and and there's now basically no no more space so a few years ago a a group kind of went out from that it's a very tight-knit insular community and started a kind of outpost in Essex in Canvey Island of uh, many 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 miles away and have and I kind of built up another kind of semi-closed community of hasidic jews there and the other groups who do this often we see this uh groups like the amish which is a kind of christian sect uh mostly found in america um where again uh, i mean the stats in the book were astonishing you know these they were having something like there's only a few thousand of them at the start of the 1900s and now there are you know Tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, um, you know, growth rates that uh, vastly outstrip anything in the surrounding society.
0: That's right. And he he writes that in the unlikely event that their expansion is a is third of the way through its course at this rate, they would number half a billion by 2060. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so one of the comments he makes is that... Um, If you take the ultra-Orthodox Jews, they have a high fertility rate, and especially in Israel, but elsewhere across the world, if you take secular Jews, particularly outside of Israel, they have an extremely low fertility rate. Hmm. And so he says we might wonder whether secular societies might fade away, leaving the religious to inherit the earth. (laughs)
1: <laughs> which would be an absolutely fascinating curveball for those who are presuming that the other direction is the other, is the other way and that secularisation is taking over.
0: You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.
1: Yeah, so so that's the kind of context in which we the kind of demography and the geography that lies behind the reasons that why why we're we're seeing aging populations. But we wanted to really dig into what are the implications for the world and migration and society and ultimately the church and Christian believers too for having this, for living in a world where old people are going to be an ever increasing share of society because as you say this is an entirely novel experience there has been no time in recorded human history and probably even before we assume where old people have 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 come to represent you know upwards of a third of the population as it is today and and it could, and likely to increase further and further over the century
0: that's right and and so you know these trends slow and steady and largely invisible nonetheless are really are going to be very significant across the world. And it's interesting that, that some of the trends are are, are are clearly positive. So for instance, there's lots of evidence that older societies, societies where old people predominate, are less violent and uh, less criminal. There's, um, there's, there's less tendency to engage in antisocial behavior. Uh, there's more social stability. And it's pretty obvious what you know why that might be. Partly just that uh, youthful energy is is often associated with antisocial activity and um, criminality, um, but also that older people have a have a much greater investment in society remaining stable and and in uh, property and in employment and in social services, and so on, they have more of a stake in the system. And therefore, they've got more to lose if there's a breakdown of social order. Hmm. I suppose in historically, you can definitely see that
1: uh, kind of more revolutionary, more kind of political movements that seek to overthrow the social order or to, to, to create radical change tend to be preferred by the young. Whereas, kind of political movements that are arguing for you know more of the same and, and steady as you go tend to be to find support among among older people though with some interesting exceptions i would argue um you know here in the uk the the movement to leave the european union the successful movement the brexit movement was pre- disproportionately favored by older people not younger people and that was uh, you know a, a break from the status quo uh an overthrowing of of the existing and fairly really stable settled set of affairs, and likewise, you could argue in some other key instances, um, kind of the the baby boom generation, dare I say, your generation has actually had a preference for more kind of radical change in in recent times.
0: Yeah, no, that's it. That is interesting, isn't it? And of course, this is where making massive um, generalizations really just doesn't work. I mean, if you think about Brexit you could argue that the older generation were really going back to hmm. a pre-EU golden age, weren't they? It was, that was really the argument. So it was not that they wanted to do something radically new. Mm. Uh, they wanted to go back to the glory days of Great Britannia. Um, at least that was an element of it. And as as far as the baby boomers go, I think the baby boomers probably are a bit a bit of outliers because you know we grew up in the 60s and the 70s and they they made a permanent change in our way of thinking mm. um and and therefore we're probably a bit of a historical anomaly the the baby boomers, a, a whole load of aging lefties least <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably more so i don't know it's it's fascinating isn't it you, you can't make these generalizations but I, I think one of the interesting ideas that that again came out of this was the idea that intergenerational conflict was going to become a more definite feature of societies as we go on into the future
1: yeah definitely and i think the story of the 20th century is often talked about as a story of you know in democracies at least that the conflicts were largely driven by class distinctions and you had um, people group around their economic self-interest Uh, battling it out and trying to secure greater slices of national prosperity and wealth and power and and what people are observing in the in the last kind of 20 plus years is is a lot of political conflict as you say is is the dividing lines are not about what job you do or how much you earn or even where you live but are often divided more on how old you are uh, and we've seen that here, you know, in the UK, a number of examples, you can see that support for the Conservative Party versus the Labour Party is quite closely correlated to age, in fact, and the younger you are, the more likely you are to vote for Labour and parallel, the older you are, the more likely you are to vote for the Conservatives, which historically wasn't the case at all. Yeah,
0: and and there's... Probably an element of this in the states as well, isn't there? With the Republicans mm, definitely. working particularly well in older age groups and in rural populations, whereas the the Western East Coast uh, much younger demographic and um, being predominantly Democrat. So, so I think there is definitely something here, and and I think that is quite a worrying um, trend for the future, isn't it? I, I do you feel that? Do you think that, you know, that that social cohesion uh, does depend on the sense that one generation is not fundamentally trying to attack another. Definitely. I think
1: there is, people often talk about the idea of a social contract, which I think is overblown, but there is a vague sense in which, you know, each subsequent generation is supposedly kind of holding up its end of the bargain and then, and, 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 and And that has been behind the idea that, you know, we should be getting progressively kind of better off as we go through and everyone wants their children to be better off than they were. And I think that has certainly broken down. I I feel I see that a lot. The, The narrative among 20s and 30s, at least here in Britain, is often that our parents generation has pulled up the ladder behind them. And that they are now focused on securing their position through, you know, making sure that we have gold plated pension schemes and our house prices never go down and and everything like this. And, and you know, we can go back to the 1960s pre, pre-EU because that was a golden era. And all of these are often are perceived and feel like a direct attack on the young about removing our prospects and about hindering our ability to achieve all the kind of prosperity and security that you took for granted.
0: Yeah, and I... I certainly sense that and and feel uncomfortable that um, the political power of the grey vote. I mean, another uh, factor in all this, of course, is that older people are more likely to vote and see it as important. um, Which is why political
1: parties do funnel cash towards them. You know, in in an age of austerity, the thing that wasn't cut, the thing that was actually increased was the state pension.
0: Yeah. And, and again, you know, we, we've we had previous podcasts discussing the COVID-19 pandemic, but one of the interesting phenomena that happened there was the way that uh, there was a great deal of focus on protecting older people um, and uh, older people in care homes, older people uh, f- who are at risk of, of dying. And uh even if that meant that the interests of the economy, the interests of younger people and their businesses and their education and all that stuff was effectively being sacrificed for old people. Mm. And and part of me felt that was a good thing. That was that represented a, a kind of Judeo Christian concern for the weak and the defenseless. <clears throat> but now I'm starting to think actually, was it just the wealthy elderly section uh insisting on their rights? Um, and being politi- the political class um, wanting to protect the interests of the voters. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, it's interesting. I have had similar thoughts where at the time I was quite kind of proud that us young people were, you know, staying at home and losing our jobs and everything else to, When in the face of a virus which posed very little threat to us realistically. You know, the death rates are hundreds of times lower for someone like me in their early 30s than they are for people in their 70s and 80s. And I was quite proud that as a country, we kind of pulled together to look after the vulnerable, not all old people obviously, but often largely elderly people. And now I look back in it and it, and it, it does feel more complex because it does feel like there was, there was a lot of sacrifices asked of the young. Uh, and now we're kind of coming out of the crisis, but nothing seems to be changed. Where's Where's the quid pro quo? Where's the parity of esteem? There's There's we, it feels like often, or it's easy to buy into the seductive narrative that as a young person, all you're asked to is to give, 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 and, and there's never anything offered back to you from
0: from the the kind of policy making elite. Yeah, no, I I get that, and and I certainly think <clears throat> you know this is likely. This is going to be played out across the world, though, isn't it? This is not a A rich country, or a sort of Anglo-Saxon economy problem, uh, it's it's very likely that uh, across the world, intergenerational conflict will increase. Um, But economically as well, the there's quite a lot of evidence that aging uh, populations are just less economically dynamic. They're less interested in creating new industries and in risky. Uh, startups and so on and many people point to japan as a as a kind of leading example of because japan has the the highest percentage of old people of any society apparently in the world at the moment and economically japan has been mired in um in high levels of debt low levels of economic output and um it's being uh directly tied up to these these changes in demography. And so maybe Japan represents what many ageing societies are going are going to have in the future.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a real one of the interesting kind of ways that Japan acts as a test case in that sense is that unusually for a kind of developed Western nation, it has incredibly low levels of immigration, partly for kind of cultural reasons. Um, and so that, that really is an example of, as you say, what happens when uh, a country starts to the 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 number of young working people are not sufficient to support the 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 cost of looking after the elderly retired, um, and that would have that would have happened for the UK, for the US, for most of Western Europe and the kind of developed world were it not for for migration you know, so so the the, the the native fertility rate in the UK, for example, has been below replacement rate for some time, but we have still had a growing, relatively th- thriving population and periods of economic growth in the last 20 or 30 years, mostly thanks to a steady stream of, of migrants, young, mostly young working age migrants from the developing world, places which haven't yet gone through that demographic transition and still have large, vibrant, young populations. And the question is, if if the immigration dry trickle slows down, or wh- when there is no longer this enormous pool from the global south to draw on, are we going to end up in this kind of stagnant, sluggish, uh, debt fueled um, kind of stasis that that country that somewhere like Japan is, which is quite quite an alarming concept for someone like me, you know, who you know is has thirty years, the forty years left in of working age, and maybe another thirty years after that of retirement, and, and it's quite unclear what kind of State pension, what kind of economic growth, what kind of opportunity will be available for me at that when I, by the time I reach your age?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I I get that. And also at a global level, I mean, at the moment, uh, the UK economy depends on a constant influx of younger people from poorer countries across the world, particularly uh, coming here acting as healthcare professionals, as nurses, as carers, and so on. But what's going to happen in the countries they come from mm. where um as, as somebody put it they grow old before they grow rich mm. um you know because effectively we're making the demographic transition worse um in in some other countries and therefore i mean apparently that's projections. for instance for thailand as that is that you know within the next decades uh it's going to very rapidly age because of so many Younger people have left Thailand um, to be, to work elsewhere in the world. Hmm. I mean, so a final point. I, 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 sorry, go on.
1: I was going to say it seems like we're really sketching a, st- a story where future societies are going to be more peaceful, more stable, less crime, but also is kind of sclerotic and stagnant and economically um, struggling. And whether that's a net win from what we have today is a really interesting <laughs> yeah. question, isn't it?
0: Well, it is. And, and, and a final bit, uh, just to add to the jigsaw, therefore, and this is where it relates it to our theme of technology, is that Japan, above everywhere else, is seeing the only solution to the care of the elderly um, has to be technology. Um, and so they are investing massively in uh, healthcare technology and assistive uh, technology for, for older people. And so again, it, it, it casts a rather dystopian view, doesn't it, of the future, that uh, of, of a, an aging population who then are basically being looked after by machines.
1: It strikes me there's almost a race against time in some sense that, you know, throughout all of human history, old people have been cared for by their young, and the young always outnumbered the old, so that wasn't a problem. And and as we're reaching a point where there won't be enough young people to either pay for or care for the elderly, we basically, before that that kind of apocalypse hits us, we need to push forward AI, robotics, um, and and these critical pieces of technology so that before we kind of have this this crisis of millions of elderly people dying un- uncared for and alone, they could all be looked after by robots.
0: Yeah, and it's a classic example of the technological fix, isn't it? A, a profound human dilemma, problem, issue. How on earth are we going to meet this answer? We'll have a technological fix. Uh, but of course, what history teaches us is that so often those technological fixes for profound human problems don't work so well.
1: Hmm. So, quite a quite a, a, a bleak episode in many ways. Talking about the graying of society and some of the complex, kind of multi-century-long trends that have led to that. Um, we're out of time for today, but we're going to talk next week about take this conversation forward and think about what does it mean for the church and what does it mean as believers to live in a world going through this unprecedented demographic transition, and 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 how have we as Christians as the church potentially kind of changed our thinking without meaning to around old people uh, who are going to become an ever bigger share of our congregations as well.
0: Yeah, that's right. So to th- me the question that I'm I'm reflecting about and asking myself and asking other people is what are old people for? Because God is giving us an awful lot of them. <laughs> so we need to think about well, what are we all for?
1: Yeah. Brilliant. All right, well that's next week. Uh, tune in then, but thanks so much John. It's been a great great conversation. Slightly uh, chilling for me as a 32 year old but hey ho uh, thanks everyone for listening um, as ever if, if you'd like to to dig a bit more deeper there'll be um, some resources and there's plenty to read about um, uh, aging and and dementia care in the elderly and technology on, on john's website uh, that's www.johnwyatt.com Um, w-y-a-t-t and otherwise you can get in touch with us uh, if you'd like to ask any questions or or have any comments on what we've discussed or suggest something to to look at by emailing molad m-o-l-a-d at premiere.org.uk otherwise uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week
0: you've been listening to matters of life and death A podcast from Premier Unbelievable.